0: to be for all things franchising hello everyone and welcome today's topic is play the bigger game aligning behavior high performance and strategy um, as you know franchise assembly are committed to ensuring you're informed about all relevant topics in business including strategy performance and seeing if you can actually play the bigger game so great to be with you again I'm excited as always with my radio shows and uh, as with all our guests rather a celebrity and someone who I pursued for some time. He's a man of quite significant uh, achievement and skills and, uh, and knowledge. Uh, so he'll be a great resource. So I know that you're going to have a lot of interesting stuff when we speak uh, shortly. So make sure you've got your notepad and paper, because uh, I do know you'll make lots of notes. So a reminder for our members uh, that this radio show will be in our members' vault very shortly, together with all the others. Um, our guest today is Philip Owens. Phil is a, a well-qualified individual. He's got degrees in physiology, pharmacology, postgrad qualifications in psychology and business. Uh, and he's a qualified company director. So he's a man who is um, certainly quite accomplished. He, he runs, has run businesses all around the world, um, including a significant one, well, 91 emerging market countries before moving on to driving global business groups. Phil was responsible for growing one business from 600 million euros annual sales to 1.2 billion euros annual sales in 18 months. So certainly makes things happen. And more recently, he's been CEO of a tech startup. So certainly multi-skilled and so forth. Uh, He's uh, a corporate behaviorist. He brings a unique behavioral view of business based on his background and his qualifications. So he devises and develops... uh, um, end cultures for high-performance behaviours. He's internationally regarded for his approach to bringing consumer and customer behaviour to the forefront of marketing uh, to drive significant business success. He offers coaching, consulting and training programmes to help you and others create high-performance for your business. He runs a business called The Bigger Game because, quite simply, he prides himself on helping others play a bigger game when they work with him. Phil, lovely to talk to you. And Good Morning Brian, how are you? Thanks for Excellent, are you thank doing, you Brian? very much indeed. Yep, nice nice to chat to you, it really is. Um, so we'll kick straight into the, uh, the questions I've got here. Um, so uh, essentially, high performance strategy, how, how does behaviour, high performance and strategy align, Phil? Well,
1: um, it's interesting because we often see them as different things. We think strategy is where everything starts. Um, but actually, if we think about it, behaviour is the heart of everything that we do in our business because how people behave determines our outcomes. And when we think about strategy, strategy is really how we choose to direct our behaviours at a particular time. So say, for example, our strategy is to gain more customers. Then all of our behaviours have to align to that successful. If our aim is to gain market share, then that's our strategy, then our behaviors have to align to that. And when we look at high performance, high performance is really based upon strategic direction that we take. So anytime we change strategy, our definition of high performance has to change as well. And therefore, the behaviors that we choose in our business uh, to actually create that strategy has to change along the way. So when we start to think about how people behave in business, it's really useful to say, how do we want people to behave around our current strategy? What do we see as being high performance that will deliver on that strategy and therefore what behaviours will help us achieve that?
0: Right. Okay. So that, that really puts things in the, in, in, in the box there. I must say the, the way you've described strategy there and, and the fact it's how we direct our behaviour and it isn't the first thing. Is interesting. I think that would, would probably make a few people question. So, uh, I, when I, one of the performances or presentations I saw you do, which was when I was really impressed, was about culture. Um, I think you have a wonderful grasp of that, and the way that you described that was really quite unique. So, how do you describe culture from a behavioral perspective? Um, and how does this help you help people build great cultures, essentially?
1: Mm. So obviously my view on culture is going to be very behavioural in, uh, in description because for me, culture is really the set of agreed, unconsciously agreed behaviours that occurs in a group of people. So and it will change depending upon which group of people that you're in. So the, the way that you behave at the football club will be very different to how you behave at work or perhaps how you behave in your church or faith group because what will have happened is there will be within any group Uh, There's a a series of behaviours which are seen as being off limits, so those things which are not up to standard, and there are those behaviours which are valued by the group. And so the culture of your organisation is really the behaviours between the standards you set at the bedrock base of your your organisation and uh, those things that you value. All the behaviours in between are the description of your culture. So what we do when we think about culture in a business is we think it's this big, horrible, complex thing. But actually, it's really about setting the boundaries by defining what do we value as a group and also what do we see as, as being uh, below standard. Because we can keep when we set a standard and we keep behaviours above that and we encourage people to operate towards what we value, then we actually create within that the culture, the space within it. And the way that I like to look at it is it's how people behave when the boss isn't there. So you take away enforced leadership, you know, enforced oversight and the way that people react in a group or behave in a group is really a definition of the culture as it lives in your organisation. And it's really important to think about culture as um, the set of behaviours that we value right now. So it goes back to that thing about high performance because everybody wants a high performance culture in their business. But what happens is when we change strategy, we have to change what we define as high performance. We therefore have to change what we set as our culture in our business because culture should not be organisational. It should be strategic. It should relate to the strategy that we're playing at the moment rather than the organisation because if you then change strategy, that your organisation keeps the culture, the behaviours that it has, it's going to be stuck and will not be able to achieve the strategy that you set.
0: That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, some of that I've uh, spoken to in the past and I find very interesting has a, has a view on this. I don't know if you know of Peter Simpson, unwritten ground rules or UGRs. This sort of, yep. how, how does that, that works into your area? How much do you see yours as being written and defined and how much of it is really just an understanding?
1: Yeah. So uh, the unwritten rules are the way most people manage culture. Um, the, mm. the trick is the, the more that we are aware of it, the more that we can shape it. So when yeah. we think about it as being, as behaviours, we have behaviours that we value and behaviours that aren't good enough. And what's in between is our culture. So when we actually allow our culture to be built on UGRs, unwritten ground rules, you know, when they're not written when we just believe that everybody knows what they are, then actually it's really difficult for us to call out bad behaviour yeah. because it's unwritten. But when it's actually yeah. when we spend time to actually define what are our standards, what was not acceptable for us as a group, then when we see it, everybody has the capacity to call it out because everybody's responsible for the culture.
0: That makes absolute sense. The analogy I draw there very quickly is the traditional business agreement, which is a handshake or a one pager, compared with a clearly defined agreement, which lies out, you know, clearly defines all the parameters and so forth for the things that may occur that in a normal course of events you had different thoughts about. So I suppose what you're saying there, if they're unwritten, it's like Chinese whispers. It's sort of people interpret it differently according to their own their own their own their
1: own thoughts or choice I suppose yeah i think I think that's right what we don't have to do is to get micro prescriptive so it's like the difference between setting up a term sheet and then moving to a, a full legal contract you know the term sheet sets out the the major frameworks that we operate within and then we agree on that and then we send it off to our lawyers to actually put together the, you know the um the nitty-gritty, the real contract. You know, that's a really good way to operate, to get your term sheet first. And in an organisation, it can be really valuable to have that term sheet view, if you like, of your culture so that people know what it is um, without it being so micro-written that it becomes painful for people to operate again. You know, you see, and the the trick is the, you know, the unwritten ground rules is a really great frame of reference for the things we value in an organization, because often people, you know, the companies, you know, they go into a committee, they come up with these great values, which are the same as everybody else's. They print them on a piece of paper, they laminate them and they stick them up on a toilet door. And that's really about (laughs) the only place you see them or in the kitchen while you're making your coffee. They're not being lived. So mm. having it somewhere between the, the hard written element and the what's the unwritten what's being lived is really important. So that's where leadership comes in because leaders have to walk the talk in a business. They're the most visible and salient members of a group. So what we do is we look to leaders and we overemphasize their behavior in terms of how we think we should behave as a group. So, when, there's, you know, when we've got a set of um, values, things we value, if the leaders aren't demonstrating those, and if the leaders aren't demonstrating behaviors above standard and calling out bad behavior, then, then actually everything's open for, to be flexible. So the leaders are really important. And they become even more important when we're changing strategy in a business. When we're going from, say, we're chasing market share and now the business decides they want to change and introduce a new product and go for a different group of customers at a higher price. Now, that requires a change in behavior, require a change in different, uh, different things of what's accepted as being above standard and what the company values. So if the leaders at, say, in such a time of change are not clearly identifying what those standards and values are and then living them, sort of combining those two approaches together and over-communicating, then people get lost on the way through. Your culture breaks down, you have almost multiple cultures building in your organisation and it's a recipe for disaster.
0: Well, this is so pertinent when we look at franchising because the the, the franchisor or the, the original business, if you like, that's the core of the operation they are going to go through quite a transition because their whole approach and philosophy is going to change. Their customers will change from being their current retail, if you like, customer to being their franchisee. So they have to undergo quite a dramatic change in, in strategy and behavior to appreciate that they now, they, they now offer loyalty to a different customer, if you like. So that, that's really interesting. It's quite pertinent. I can understand exactly where you're coming from there.
1: Yeah, and I, I think for, it, it, there's a real transition point, and it happens in a lot of businesses. And for, you know, when, when someone's franchising their business, they go from serving the direct consumer, if you like, to then mm. putting a customer in between them and their consumer. And mm. you're absolutely right. that the, If you think about the customer and consumer experience, the experience that a, a customer, that a franchisee, if you like, needs and wants, is very different from what the consumer needs and wants. And so that's going to require a change in strategy. It's going to require a change in behaviours. And it's also going to require, if you like, a change in culture behind that so that it can be done in the best way possible, in a high-performance way, so that everybody across that value chain wins.
0: Absolutely. And um, now think, thinking through that, um, the, the, the element is important when it comes to calling out bad behavior because if if you allow one of your franchisees to be the bad apple then that's going to spread like wildfire because they are one part removed if you like that I see franchisees as being franchise partners or business partners effectively rather than the traditional sort of understanding that a lot of people have but Mm. it's obviously critically important to get in and nip in the bud Any situation where someone is stepping outside the boundaries because it's going to have an influence throughout the whole organisation it will spread like wildfire.
1: Yep. Um, And what I see in in franchise or franchisee relationships is it happens on both sides because the the franchisee is actually um, the – the holder of the brand value in a way because they're the face of the customer. You walk into a franchisee store or a franchisee business arrives at your house or whatever it is. And they're, they're representing the brand. They're holding the brand envelope for the consumer to interact with. And behind that is the franchise or who's, who's creating the structure for that, you know, to be efficient and effective. So everybody wins in that value chain. But if the, if the behaviors of the, franchisee outward towards the consumer don't represent the highest quality in terms of what's possible from the franchisor's model, then things start to break down. It starts to represent the brand poorly. It reflects overall on the brand poorly and can have really bad knock-on effects. At the same time, the behaviors between the franchisor and the franchisee often, you know, you can get into this situation where, Um, Bad behaviors at that level can affect the value chain massively all the way through to the consumer. If the franchisor isn't responding in an appropriate manner or the language is not appropriate or, you know, they're not treating the the, the franchisee as their customer. If there's a a mindset in terms of um, customer service versus customer slavery going on, who, who controls what. If there's not that clarity in terms of these behaviors are the minimum standard that we're going to agree to together, this is what we value in our relationship and this is what's going to make us both successful. It's a really interesting conversation, but if you actually have it and set it and live by it, then you've got a much better frame for the franchisee-franchisor relationship to be successful.
0: Couldn't agree with you more because communication is where most things in franchising break down one way or the other. It's a lack of understanding, yeah. maybe maybe a, a lack of adequate support from the franchisor's point of view. But where, no matter where it comes from, it's because it's not defined adequately in a communications manual of some kind. So that it's very clear that everyone, well, the whole, the whole story is singing from the same hymn sheet, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing about communication is it's a set of behaviours. And, yeah. you know, to go back to that whole behavioral thing, it's like, okay, here's, we hit a problem. Now, how do I behave when I hit a problem? Do I, you know, try and solve it myself? Do I, is the first thing I do run for help? Is it, how do I make a really good decision on what I do at that point? Because some things I should be able to solve myself. Other things I should be taking straight to the franchise or And it's like, as a franchisee, i I've, if I've got the capability to make high quality decisions and to find ways to communicate, you know, they're they're core behaviors of success because often we think, oh, it's how I behave, it's how I do X, Y, Z. But the, the deeper things about how do I make a high quality decision? How do I actually do that? That's a really important, you know, behavior set. You know, how do I, how do I communicate? How do I overcome? How do I help somebody understand my position so that we can, we can advance a position? How do I negotiate? How do I, you know, there's a whole series of really core human basic behaviors that we don't teach anywhere. We just assume that people have. And yet these are the things that when people get right can make a massive difference in terms of their, their efficacy and their efficiency in terms of running a business like a, like a franchise.
0: Uh, absolutely. So, this I suppose this leads on to, to my next question, which is going to be around actually getting the best from people, because obviously that's having those parameters and so on. But you know, I suppose why do we need to think about it specifically from the point of view of, of high performance, um, as you as you're implying there? We perhaps tend to think that people, you know, a- act appropriately anyway. That this isn't necessarily the case, as we know. So why is, why is meaning so important in business as well perhaps you could expand yeah, so, on that a bit
1: yeah so if if we both if we have a clear idea of what of what we're trying to achieve if we have our you know we talk about mission vision and values in an organization and i actually don't think that that is a really good set of ways to think about a business i like to think about about your purpose and your vision and your values, because your mission is actually serving your purpose. That's it. So when your purpose is actually geared towards, um, and you know, this comes from the presentation that uh, you, would have, you saw when we, we met in Singapore recently, the whole idea about having a social license to operate. So if we don't set an adequate purpose for what we're doing, we're not looking at how it's going to impact upon people, the world people or whatever. If we're only doing it to make money, we might as well just be a bank. But when what we're doing actually adds value to people, actually makes the world a better place, makes someone's life a better place, it actually gives us a a social license to operate. People go, I get it. You're in business and it's a really good thing to be in business. Now, if we're trying to get people to work with us on something, and we say it's about us making money. People go, oh, yeah, I can do that. Lots of different ways. I can rob a bank. I can invest in the share market. You know, I can, you know, I can knock off Arnie Ethel and, and get, you know, get a inheritance. There's many ways that people can make money. But actually, when we align ourselves to a, a purpose and we have a clear purpose about what we're trying to achieve, so business is about doing X. <clears throat> and it's about doing X because it impacts people in such a magnificent way. You know, for me, I'm about helping people play their bigger game because when people do that, the world changes, the ripples change beyond that. So, you know, for me, when I can be really clear and I can say, this is why I do what I do, I help people because it matters in this way, then if people are going to work with me, they can align behind that and they can make a decision, I'm aligned to that or I'm not aligned to that. But if I give people... That sense of meaning about my business, it's really hard for you to decide if you're going to be in or out. You know, and if we're looking for engagement, we always talk about engagement in business. There's three different types of ways that people can be engaged. If I'm highly engaged and I'm actively engaged with the meaning of the business, I'm doing everything I can to help. That meaning be lived, and you, you, high engaged, highly engaged employees are awesome because you know they just they drive the business forward. They're always looking for ways to serve the meaning of the business. You know, and you'll be lucky in a, a really good business. You'll be lucky if you've got sort of twenty or thirty percent of people in that category. In the next category are what are called transactional employees. They essentially come in, they don't see the meaning of what you do, and all they do is they trade their time for your money. So they come in, they work, they take them. They want to use, they want to offer the minimum they can in terms of their time and effort, and take the maximum money that they can. This is what I call transactional employees, um, and they're really common. You'll see them every Friday afternoon. You'll see them leaving their offices with their shoulders slumped if you walk through a major a capital city. And then you've got at a bottom level, you've then got the, the the disengaged employees, and those are the ones who are really hanging on by fear. They don't only not see your meaning, but they actually are are working against your meaning because they're putting themselves and their own fear needs above the business. And this can be up to, again, about another 20% of the business, um, you know, people in in a a major business. So having meaning is actually really important because it's going to more likely draw the sorts of people that, that share your passion and can deliver upon what you want to, to, to do and create the impact you want to do. And it's also going to make them more engaged with your business to help them drive it forward. So that question of meaning, I know it's sort of a bit of a tag on the thing, but I think it's really core. Cool. And when, you're, when you can then take your, your, your business can then evolve along that meaning direction. If all I do is make, you know, if all I do is make chairs, then when, I, when, when chairs are no longer important to people, then I'm out of business. But if what I'm doing is about making a comfortable environment for people to relax in, then my business can evolve from chairs to whatever else comes next. And so actually meaning and the impact that you have sits above what you do as a business because it actually draws your business forward over the three horizons into your future. It gives you a really clear guide on on where you need to go. And then shifting back to, you know, about people and why shouldn't they deliver high performance? Well, the first thing is when people are engaged, that's great. That gets them, you know, we've we've got them engaged. We've got them wanting to deliver against that meaning. But the truth is we often ask, you know, people um, to do stuff that they just can't do because from a behavioural point of view, if you think about it, consider an example. Say, Brian, you've asked me today to, you want to see juggling. That's the behavioural outcome that you want to see. So I'm standing in front of you and you say, Phil, juggle. You know, that's what I really want to see, juggling. And I say to you, Brian, honestly, I can't be stuffed can't be bothered today. Then you're not going to see juggling. So straight away, if motivation is missing, you won't see behavior, the behaviours that you want that, will be, that you need for your business. The second thing is if I'm standing in front of you and you say, Phil, juggle, but I've never juggled before and I, I drop all the pens on the floor, then the skills are missing. And so you're not gonna see the, the behaviors that you want to drive your business if I don't have the skills. And the third level is, if you say, feel juggle, but I've got, I haven't got the pens to juggle I haven't got anything to juggle, then if without the infrastructure, you're not gonna see the behaviors. So it's a really simple formula. If you wanna see a behavior, you need to ensure that you've got the correct motivation is present, that the person has the skills to deliver, and they've got the infrastructure, so the time, the tools, the the finances, the resources, or whatever to make it true. So when we're trying to get the best from people, sometimes what we do is we don't make it clear, first of all, what is the behavior, what is the high-performance behavior that we want from them? We often say, I'll go do a good job at this. But until we can actually describe what does a high-performance behavior look like, people can't do it. Then after that, we can ask someone to do something but unless we actually check if they've got the motivation to do it, the skills and the infrastructure, then it simply might not be possible for them to achieve it. And I see this so often in businesses that the thing that's missing is the skill or the infrastructure. We haven't given the person the appropriate training, for example. You know, we, we, ask, the, we ask a rep to, to do something completely different, to sell a new product, to go to a different place, to do whatever but we haven't checked to see that they've got the skills to do that. Or perhaps they haven't got the infrastructure. They haven't got the resources to help them to be successful in that particular frame. And then what we do, we go, Oh, they're not motivated. You know, oh, they don't, you know, they're no good. They don't want to do it. And someone might really want to do it, but without those two other elements, we're not going to see what we want. So if we, if we're not, Defining what high performance is against our strategy, we're not saying these are the behaviours, and then dropping down to check are those behaviours actually possible by the people that I'm asking to do it. Then we're going to get ourselves stuck. So we get the best from we get the best from people when we help them see what the high high performance behaviour is, and then check those elements of behaviour to make sure they're present so that they can deliver against
0: it. So this comes back to that sort of trilogy, I suppose, of recruiting the right people, giving them the right training and support and monitoring them so everyone knows what the expectations are. I think that's that's a really nice summary of it, Brian. Um, So moving on, you you mentioned before, you know, we're talking about the consumer um, in franchising particularly, but in any business, obviously, the consumer or customer experience is what runs, you know, that that determines the success of the business uh, ultimately. Um, and its longevity, so this is an area where you know you specialize you 're renowned for you know behavioral marketing approach that you have. Why is a customer experience so important in getting the great results in your opinion so I think that the first thing is to
1: recognize that you know, the, the power sits at the end of the day with the consumer to buy or not to buy from us. And mm. what we do is, is we think we know what the customer wants or the consumer, the consumer wants. But the truth is unless we ask them, unless we understand what, they, what experience they're actually going through in the process of, of actually becoming a customer of ours, we can get lost. We can, a lot of organisations focus on what we do, on their capability, rather than on the consumer and the customer. So if if you break it down and you think that a customer's gotta go at some point from, you know, complete naivety, they don't know anything about you, to being a really good customer of your product or service, they've got to pass through some behavioral gates. They first of all have to somehow become aware of what you do. Then after that, they have to they have to be interested in it. After they're interested, they have to shift to a place where they're actually going to have a desire to 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 use or even try your product or service. And then they have to take an action step when they're actually going to take the action of purchasing or becoming a, becoming a customer of yours or custom of your product or service. So this AIDA model, you know, we have to think about how people are moving through it. Now at every step in that process, the consumer is looking for a certain experience. They're looking for, um, they're making a choice between behaving one way and behaving another, between gaining one experience and not gaining another. Now, as an organization, if we're not paying attention to the customer experience, a number of things happen. The first is the, the is disruption, you know, one of the buzzwords in business at the moment. And if you think about it, we take the Uber example, which everybody loves. You know, if taxis had understood the consumer experience, and they had shifted with the consumer experience rather than just remain static where they were, people would not have taken the risk of hopping into ride-sharing vehicles with unregistered people who could have been serial killers. You know, if the taxi experience was half as good as it needed to be, people would not have taken the risk of, going, of changing a behaviour to, to get an experience which somehow matched what they were after. And all, all Uber did was add technology to ride sharing that was already occurring. So when we look at it through that lens, the, the taxi industry failed dramatically because instead of paying attention to the changing customer experience, the customers wanted clean, they wanted um, appropriately priced, they wanted taxis to be on time, they wanted an easy way to order them, they, you know, they wanted them to be safe, they wanted them to know where they're going you know, they wanted them to be well monitored and controlled and they weren't getting that. So because they didn't shift to that, you know, because the customer experience had changed from, okay, you get in a taxi and that's the only option you've got. Okay. There were more options. People wanted something different. So they got, they got um, uh, disrupted. So then the taxi drivers are sitting there and saying, well, how come my licenses aren't worth anything now? How come, you know, people are preferring to take Uber. It's because, they allowed, them, they allowed themselves to get disrupted because they failed to pay attention to the way the consumer experience changed. And we're seeing it in shops now with tap and go. You know, you know, customers, how many customers are walking in cashless? So if your business, if you said, no, no, we only take cash and you weren't offering FPOS or Visa, MasterCard services with tap and go, you think that you're no longer matching the consumer experience the likelihood is you're going to get disrupted. So understanding the consumer experience is really critical because if the consumer isn't getting the experience they want, they will go somewhere else to get it. So when you think about, when your franchise, with people listening, think about their business and they think about the consumer experience. How does the consumer experience every aspect of their business, all of the different touch points? You know, it might be vans on the street, it might be, uh, bit signage out the front. It might be a report in the financial press about the, the franchise, or it might be the young lady that served them the first time. It might be the young man who serves them the second time. You know, each of these touch points is going to shape the consumer experience. So if we're not paying attention to what is the consumer experience as they flow from being a naive you know, potential customer, if you like, all the way through to being a loyal lover of our product or service, we're not paying attention to each of those steps. We could be setting up traps where they get stuck, where they're not gonna move ahead because we haven't thought about how to actually assist them, gain the experience that they want. And to take it to another level, if we think, if we describe marketing as only being changing a specific behavior in a specific consumer or customer for a specific reason, then marketing is about changing behavior. And if you think about where we want to operate, you know, when, when we're marketing to people, if we market at the top of the process, and what we're trying to do is draw more people in, you know, draw more people into the funnel, well, we could be acting all the way down the other end, which is to stop, you know, customers who walk into our store leave without purchasing something, you know, like plugging the holes in the bucket. Our growth strategy will determine our marketing. Because when we decide that that's the behavior we want to change in a customer, the the customer's behavior is to walk into the store, look around and just walk out. If we want to change their behavior, we want them to walk into the store, we want to introduce them to something that they're interested in, get them desiring to buy it, make them an offer so they buy it. We're actually changing a series of behaviors in the customer to change their experience. So when we think about behavioral marketing, it's really about understanding what specific behavior am I trying to change? Where, am I not, where are my customers not following that path of awareness, interest, desire, and action? And how do I actually focus my marketing in such a way that it's cost effective to change a behavior to drive the outcome that I want?
0: That, that just highlights to me, you're just such a, you've got such a, you're a, mar- a marvellous resource with, with, with your background knowledge and your experience. And uh, and um, what, what I'd like to do is perhaps for you to expand a little bit for us on the way you do work with people. So if I was interested in um, perhaps accessing you know some of, your, some, some of your skills and some of your consulting, uh, how, how is, what's the process for that? What, what should I expect? Well, sure. Well, what would
1: happen is um, normally people get in touch with me and I sit down and have a couple with them and um, we talk about what's going on for them. And within that conversation, you'll generally find that there's people want a change in something. So they're, you know, they're wanting to get a better outcome or they're stuck somewhere, they've got a problem, or they just recognize that there's an opportunity for something to develop and change and get better. Um, I'll obviously bring that behavioral lens to it. We'll look at the world in a different way to what most people will look at it. And then from there, it's just a matter of then setting up. If it's about an individual, it's about a leader or somebody getting better, then we can do, we can do it through a coaching and mentoring type approach. If it's about, an organ, you know, about a team, I can get in and facilitate you know, interpersonal stuff, interpersonal behaviors in teams. Or if it's across an organization, then we can work on training and consulting. Because sometimes what's really important is the bringing the, the business along. And often what I'll do is I'll work at multiple levels at the same time. So I recently worked with a really large um, health service. Uh, like I think there's about um, uh, 12 hospitals in the network plus outreach services and everything else. And they came to me and they said, we want to do leadership development. We want to do a 360 program. I said, that's great. You do a 360 program and like a you know, 360 feedback loop. And like most organizations, what will happen is they'll do it, they'll get some results and people will sort of put the, the report away and never look at it again. So instead what we did was we went to the organization and we taught the people how to give and receive feedback first Did a training session on that. I took the leaders and taught them how to be coaches in their own business. So instead of being a boss leader, be a coaching leader. Then we ran the 360, so we got great feedback, and then we actually got the leaders to coach the next layer down in terms of building out development plans and having ongoing, um, ongoing value. So from a behavioral point of view, I could have said, yeah, let's just do a 360, do the reports, and everyone will be, you get what they want. But actually taking a step back and looking at what brings true value to the business, by working at the, at the coaching level, at the coaching level, at the facilitation and consulting level, and at the training level, we're able to put together a great package which is going to give this organisation the, the you know, self-efficacy, the skills to coach and lead and develop themselves over the next five years. So you know, I'm, I'm always looking to see how can I help individuals, teams and organisations play a bigger game. And I'll make suggestions and I'll I'll, you know, in the end we'll work out what works best. But it's really, if you think about it, it's um it's a, a high level approach to coaching, it's a high level approach to facilitating and consulting and even then putting together training programs to bring other people along. And so working with me is um uh is pretty is pretty simple because um I work with people across a range of industries and in a, a range of styles. And I can flex all the way up from um you know uh, chairmen of the board all the way down to people who um, uh, you know people who run a mum and pop operation who just want to build strategy and high performance in what they do
0: excellent that's that's quite fascinating and uh, what i I'd like to do is share with everybody um how they can contact you if that's okay for that cup of that couple that you mentioned um sure so you can you can contact Phil at the dot com a u so the bigger game. Um, his phone number, by the way, um, okay if I share your mobile number, Phil? Yeah, please. Uh, um, it's 0418 126652. I'll repeat that, 0418 If you have any trouble getting in contact with Phil, please contact me um, and Franchise Simply. It's always easy to make an introduction. So I must say it's been delightful. Um learned so much talking to you and listening to you Phil, I really do, really am indebted to you for giving us so much time. And uh, I'm sure everyone will join me and say it's been a privilege having the opportunity to get to know you a little more and hearing your words of wisdom. Um, So uh, essentially, I suppose in closing, is there a final point or observation you might like to make to our listeners, Phil? Uh, The only thing I I would suggest is to
1: just always ask yourself, what are the behaviours that I want to see? And how do I go about creating them? Because that's the way you know, life is built on the quality of the behaviours that we put out there. Um, and, uh, and I wish everybody well in your, uh, your endeavours as you move ahead. And um, great to catch up again, Brian. It's a pleasure
0: speaking to you again. Well, fantastic. Thanks very much indeed, Phil Owen. So this is Brian Keane from Franchise Simply signing off. Looking forward to being with you when we interview our next franchise radio show guest.